Exits for Podcast is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. Hey everybody, welcome back to X's for Podcast, the show where we take a look at the adventures of comics Marvelous Mutants week after week through their many monthly titles. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction, that's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Guys, gals, and non-binary pals, I could not be more excited that we are still hot in the middle of the Hellfire Gala. So without further ado, in this next clip, X-Men 21 brought about an incredible amount of change for the X-Men, and it was a powerful statement by John Hickman on the state of the X-Men as it stands. Myself, Jonah, Drew, and Evelyn all sat down to take a look at it and discuss some of the most amazing parts of this game-changing issue in a crossover that is reshaping the future of the X-Men. Don't forget, if you like what you hear, you might like what you see, so give us a subscribe over on X's for Podcast on YouTube, where we handle the Daily X, where we bring you the same sort of incredible X-Men deep dives day after day over on YouTube. Enjoy. There we go. That makes more sense. Okay. Hey everybody, welcome back to X's for Podcast. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Hey, I'm Evelyn, the Comic Canary. You can find me on Instagram at Twitter at Comic underscore Canary. Hey guys, I'm Drew. You can find me online on Twitter and Instagram at DrewSirher3. That's at D-R-A-W-S-I-P-H-E-R-3. And I'm Jonah, and you can follow me over on Twitter and Instagram at PeakJonah. That's P-E-A-K. And we hope you survive this experience just like Namor survived this entire gala by telling everyone, I'm better than you, and call me when you have some actual leverage. Okay, so starting, starters off, starting the to go back and start again. The thing I need to say is I have been doing this reread of Hoxpox to now to get really excited for the gala, and I thought I timed it okay so that, like, I would get there in time, and then I guess I forgot just how many fucking issues there are, and so I'm a little bit further behind than I thought I'd be. On top of my, at this point, having read about 40 issues of the Hoxpox era again, counting 11 references to Infernos and burning it all down, <laughs> I also caught that the first reference to the gala was in one of the first issues of Marauders. So Emma Frost says, we've decided that we're going to have a Hellfire Gala, whatever that is. We don't know yet, but we're going to have one as Jumbo Carnation fits her for a suit. So we've had this coming for an incredibly long time. I also noticed that in New Mutants, Cyclops tells Gladiator, hey, real quick, um, we don't want to put a gateway on Chandelar, but I don't know if you noticed, there's a little floating island up in space. We want a gate on that island that floats near you in space. And Gladiator says, oh, Chandelure, that can be arranged. So, okay, everything about this has been building for a zillion trillion years, even fuck forgetting the vote. Of course, the highlight for me was the touchback to the Namor thing. Now, I just unpacked a lot of stuff for everybody to react to. So I'm going to, I need to get specific reactions and then general reactions. Drew, you came into this show with like Hickman bazookas blazing. Uh, although, I mean, you're Canadian, so I don't know that you guys, do you guys have bazookas? Uh, I mean, not prevalently. <laughs> like you don't see not them. Not like at Walmart. <laughs> yeah, not exactly. Like Texas. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So 
Now, you came in with your big ol' Hickman bazookas blazing, 10,000% blown away by the expansive reimagining of the X-Men. I know you'd had some trepidation about the reset and transition over to Dugan from Hickman, who's clearly been a favorite of yours this whole time. How do you feel about the paying off and the coming due of so many of the seeds that brought you here in the first place? I love it. And actually, I've been wanting to do a reread of like the Hickman run for a while. I've just been reading other things, um, but I'm going to get to it before Inferno, hopefully. I The whole Namor scene, I have... So I was talking about it with my brother, and I have... Recently, they came out with casting for Namor. And like I've, I feel like I've seen a lot of people like whitewashing him and casting like white people as him. When to me, he's clearly an a like an quote unquote Asian man, like specifically, I think Korean. Um, and I just like to me, Atlantis is basically, if we're talking about MCU for a quick sec, um, is kind of the Asian Wakanda, and that's kind of like the society I want it to be, like underwater Asian, you know, kind of vibe. Now, I definitely see some connections to a very feudal society. Uh, echoing through the nations of China and Japan, and a very strong focus on an outside perspective as opposed to a very Americanized white perspective, right? So I am also looking for a multicultural Namor experience. I do hope that some of the casting rumors that have been out there are true, because I'm a pretty big fan, so I'd like to see that happen. Now, something else I need to see happen, and I need to see it in a big way, is I need to see the further exploration of the power of women in the X-Men. Don't get me wrong. Storm has always been a leader, but so frequently, Storm's the leader under Xavier. Too frequently, the women of the X-Men are the secondary leader, right? Here, I don't think there's any question. If the Hellfire Gala was an X-Team, I mean, this is Emma Frost's X-Men event. Like, there's just no other two fucking ways about it. And I cannot think of a better person to ask how that feels than X's for Podcast's very own Emma Frost. So I got to know, Evelyn, what was it like seeing your girl take the stage? I mean, I know you had a long, weird relationship getting to loving her. So how did this play I out just, for you? I just, I just fucking love it. Like every second of it. Where just seeing her just so just goddamn fabulous there. Just especially like towards the end where she's like, hey, guys, you don't have to watch if you don't want to. But uh, you're gonna want to. Was just fan-freaking-tastic. And just this whole hellfire gala just seeing her like large and in charge and just being the queen we all know she is has just been really exciting for me and she's pulling off like the best party ever with so many incredible undertones that have such significant implications for mutant kind and the world moving forward and especially with like with the unknown like people when she asks them for something that's obviously very important important to them and they're just like you can't possibly know and she's like oh no i know like i could just hear her smirk and you know like i have this bad relationship with yeah. the two live action interpretations of emma frost not like not like in an aggressive mean way i i love january jones and i think she is a breathtaking actress I just don't feel like she was possibly the one thing I did not think was literally perfect about the film First Class, right? And she was so close, it didn't even fucking matter. You know what I mean? But it just maybe wasn't my Emma Frost. And of course, the less said about the Emma from Wolverine Origins, the better, because <laughs> the less said about Wolverine Origins, the better, right? But one of the th things that like hits my my brain in such an interesting way is that this event can only exist because of essentially... Young super queers like JoJo. And here's what I mean by that. 
Emma Frost gets her own X-Men yeah. event finally. Because this is the Emma Frost X-Men event. You know, this is her event. And if Emma Frost is going to have an event, it's going literally, to literally be a party. It's going to be a party full of wars of words. So there's, um, there's a term, right? Uh, a word, the word battle means both language and a fight. Emma Frost is bearing a battle of fashion right now. And Jonah, when I brought you into this universe, this X-verse as it were, you know, I was like, oh, and there's all these big fights. And sometimes the big fights get stupid. And I, I don't know that you said these words to me verbatim, but I can hear you go, oh, wait, you know, it'd be really cool if instead of having a fight, <laughs> they had like a fashion show. And I would have been like, number one, I don't know why you're John Yu from The Good Place in this impression. Uh, it happens. But I can't help but think this sort of understated kind of surreal event is a result of the growth of fandom coming in from other avenues. Your love of outside media. Like, and I know that in the last few years it's really taken taken hold, but like, you know, things like Persona meets Drag Race is really what's kind of playing out this sort of hyper stylized imagery where color and shape tell the story, set against the idea of war in prestige. How does it feel seeing the sort of echo of your interests reverberate into a comic in a way they've never done before? It is everything and more to me. Uh, there is an iconi uh, iconic, iconic quote by the amazingness known as Rihanna that has been in my head for years of when she first said it of she can beat me but she can't beat my fashion and it's a line that i took to heart and i understood what that meant and what the power of your fashion and your style and everything can say about you and how much power there is in the way you present yourself in the way that you dress in the way that you style yourself and everything that can come about it in everything of what it says your outfit says everything and it really is a beautiful thing to see the X-Men, and not, not even just the X-Men, I should say, but just comics in general, taking a really interesting approach to camp avant-garde fashion of this very high prestige event of this Hellfire Gala and mixing those two worlds that I don't think I've seen mixed before that I didn't think would be mixed was really something that I, it's just, I'm enjoying this event so much and it's just so beautiful to see this this beautiful mix of fashion and superheroes where let's be honest it should be more often you're a superhero you i feel like superheroes should always have an amazing costume or a bad costume for whatever you're trying to say about them i think back to many of my favorite superheroes and i think of well they have a very distinguished look and their costume says everything about them and seeing all of my favorite X-Men characters get to dress up in this very hoity-toity kind of way just makes me very happy. And it's just, it's so exciting to be able to see and watch unfold. And, okay, so I really like everything you said because it brings me back to a point that, can you imagine if I ever was like, I don't like some of the things you said? Because, like, when I edit me, I hear me say that phrase a lot. 
what a dick move. Um, so I really do like a lot of the things you said because it also sort of ties me back to something that Drew said and a thing that if there's anybody who can comment on, it's Evelyn, right? So I was really excited that I had these three voices and I knew it was the right people because uh, for those who don't know, we do have a private Discord where we sort of like talk all day, right? And something that came to me because we had a discussion where, Drew, you had shared your thoughts on Atlantis as more than just uh, another appropriative white culture, but rather seeing ties to connective ideas. And anybody who's a fan of Avatar might have some experience with that idea to be able to relate the idea over, the idea that certain tribes are based on certain real life and now societies and I have a casting choice for Namor myself but it's of a culture that doesn't exist down to the pointy ears I think the Atlanteans are the fae they are mean they are twisted they are brilliant they have magic beyond your belief they have incredibly long life they are one with nature and can commune with the spirits if you enter their garden you my friend are they going to be their next victim? He possesses 70% of the sea. The Fae possess 70% of reality. There is so much to this idea of the culture integration here only being possible because it's this brand new kind of unfolding crossover. If this were an actual battle and it were the Fae, it would be War of the Realms, but it's Namor. And it's this culture clash. Now, Evelyn, there is there are a few people I trust anywhere near as much for getting high fantasy or sort of Tolkien opinions, right? So how do you feel, perhaps, about that read on the Atlanteans as, you know, that very cruel fey idea? And how do you feel that the representation of magic that was so prevalent in Ten of Swords, having faded away, plays into the gala? I am absolutely living for this take right now. Like, (laughs) this is something that I have not thought about previously, but I absolutely adore this now. Because it would make sense that they are the Fae of the Sea um, with the way that we think of, like, high fantasy type of things with, like, with mermaids and sirens and all that kind of stuff. And, yeah, a lot of those, like, kind of modern concepts do come from more westernized ideals, like, starting back with, like, the Greeks and Romans, but a lot of other cultures all around the world also have these ideas of these fantasies and sea creatures. Um, there's basically like some form of like mermaid type myth in pretty much every single coastal culture all around the world. So seeing that as a way to kind of get that multicultural ideal set in with the Atlanteans and in the comics would be really interesting. Like just thinking about like Atlanteans as like Tolkien-esque elves is just blowing my mind right now, honestly. (laughs) And they have that cruelty and that regality and like every fucking one of them thinks they deserve a crown. Like that. (laughs) It kills me. Um, now, Drew, are you a big fantasy guy? I remember at the time that early teeny Howard's Excalibur would occasionally leave you kind of cold. Sometimes you're really connected with it. As someone who has, you know, interest and connection to the character of Namor, how do you feel about 
that idea of sort of a transformative take. I also never thought about it until you mentioned it. And I, that makes sense. And like, I totally agree with it in the context of the comics. Um, I personally am a huge Namor fan. To me, he is the male version of Emma Frost. Like they are kind of, uh, you know, like the male, he's the male version of Emma Frost. Like just personality wise, you know, that. um, That is a statement that stands unto itself. Totally. Yes. (laughs) Like that, like being cunning, you know, um, and all all that jazz um and that's why i kind of think that how in the which was it when they kind of like get together a little, a little bit was that in the, oh my god oh the I'm matt thinking. fraction um yes yes, yes 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 so in the utopia era when they kind of have a, a thing together it like it kind of makes a little bit of sense you know they can like bargain with each other and kind of play that you know that bargaining game with like some you know sexual kind of tension in there as well now jonah Emma Frost is a huge thing for you, and you have such an interest in characters with, let's go with cocky bravado, right? How do you feel about Namor's reintroduction into the X-Men here in the form of the story? We have Charles and Eric say, you know, hey, hey, boo, we threw a party. When was the last time you threw a party? Want to join us now? We'll give you a seat in the Senate. And Namor said, until y'all ball worship me like a god, I am not stepping foot on your pitiable island again. And they were like, oh, honey. How did you feel about that interplay of, I mean, that was just straight read after read after read after read. Yes. um, I have a quick, quick pun joke. Uh, I imagine Namor's uh, favorite musician is Atlantis Morissette. Um, with such hits, such as uh, You Wanna Blowfish? (laughs) Go home. Just go the fuck home. I'm already home. (laughs) I appreciate that. Um, I do, I definitely do. That moment to me, so Namor is a character who I know has been in comic history for years upon years upon years, and he's been a very long-standing character, you know. I imagine a lot of big-name companies will have some form of version of a character who rules the say. It's, I, I, the idea that there is not new, but how they interpret it is. Namor as a character, as I've grown to find, at least in recent years, has a very adamant cocky attitude about how he handles things and i truthfully don't blame him he is a mutant atlantean so he's kind of a mutant and kind of atlantean but not really both um and it's really interesting to see his interpretation of the world and how he views it and how he views his kingship I'm not sure how exactly I feel on Namor, but I can say in everything I've at least seen him in involving the X-Men has been fairly entertaining. This entire moment is very interesting because it seems like Charles and Eric throughout a lot of this gala are kind of just shooting their shot and hoping things work for them, but it really seems like they're falling flat in the actual follow-through of how to get the things that they want. Like, you're offering Namor a seat on the Quiet Council, but he's literally the king of the ocean. You're not really giving him any incentive to actually want to be a part of Krakoa. Granted, if you do get Namor actually on your side and actually, you know, be able to claim Krakoan residentship, you have a lot of bargaining power with controlling the entire ocean. But it really seems like... 
Eric and Charles just aren't here to play. And Namor's like, listen, you're not even in my league. You're not even playing the same sport as me. I am literally the ocean incarnate. What do you got on me, baby? Like that entire scene, I was just, I was living for it. It was like just Charles and Magneto right now. Like, oh my God, God love them. I mean, they're obviously living their best gay life right now. They're obviously a married couple with matching outfits, but like someone needs to put them in their place every once in a while because get away for their britches and like just Nimor just like just going there he like he went there he had no qualms about going there he just laid it all out and it was just like I dare you to say something come at me and I just like yeah the big dick bro of it all the big dick bro of it all it, like one of my favorite parts of this scene was kind of the like we're trying to show each other up you know what I mean and it's like this is the one thing that I think Hickman is really good at is the um the showing up of like these kind of like um political battles you know through like and by like their verbal battles um and it kind of takes me back to X-Men number five I believe it is when they go to the summit meeting um, and kind of have that sort of similar kind of talk. Oh, yeah. You know, I just reread that. That's in what I've gotten through already. That's a really great point. And you know what? That's sort of, ooh, because that's sort of magic balance with Gorgon in some of those other scenes. Ah, great touch. Love that connection. Now, speaking of connections, there's a sort of big moment that comes due here that I personally felt was underserved, and it's it's sort of hard to even explain. I feel that the announcement of the new X-Men team sort of went clunk. I don't think it played out anywhere near as exciting in the issue as it does in the metaverse. And I think perhaps that's even why they made such an exciting event of it, because it is truly just sort of a clunk moment and it was beautifully done but it it really just kind of felt like any other announcing the team that we already knew because of press junkets and covers so beyond that even there's another really kind of huh thing about this that i hadn't thought about until i was thinking about why the team would have been introduced this way this isn't hickman's x-men this is dugan's x-men it feels a little weird that hickman gets to announce dugan's x-men I don't know how I feel about either of those things. Now, that's me having a an editorial opinion where no editorial opinion was asked for. But, you know, that's just how I feel about it. I want to see Jerry Dugan taken seriously and not treated as not Hickman. So I wonder about the optics of his introduction of this team. How did you guys feel about the grandeur or quality of the interplay of the announcement? And do you guys feel that perhaps Hickman announcing Dugan's team is part of what makes it clunk. Yeah, I really agree. One of the things I have in my notes is that a lot of the events so far have taken place telepathically. Some major, some minor, some I think we will see in the future. But this was kind of like one of the ones I was disappointed. I would have liked to see the actual election happen and kind of like the discussion and discourse around it. Another thing too is like in Marauders, the concert, again, how that was all kind of like telepathically driven. It's just like, like you know what I mean? Like it's it's everyone else who's ex- experienced. I'm not experiencing it. 
so I'm just kind of like watching everyone else experience it and I'm like okay cool turn page like there's nothing like a visual component of it would have been cool or you know like bringing the reader into that moment would have been cool obviously Russell Donovan's art especially that last page of the reveal of the team honestly could be a cover on its own like it could be the cover of X-Men number one yeah and you know that's the magic of having these brilliant pencilers inside this book I kind of can't believe that we got so excited about talking about the book that I kind of forgot to perhaps maybe give the credits so hey what a great time to give the credits (laughs) oops so we are of course talking this whole time for the last 25 minutes about X-Men number 21 end of an era uh, by Jonathan Hickman with Nick Dragotta, uh, who has done X-Men for years, worked on some ecstatics with Mike Allred for a while. Russell Dowderman, longtime major X-Men contributor. Uh, Lucas Wernick and Sarah Pacelli, who is sadly miscredited in the solicit and the online listing for the issue as Sarah Pacello. So do note she is Sarah Pacelli. I hope Comixology gets to fixing that. Frank Martin, Matthew Wilson, Sonny Goh, and Nolan Woodard, all veteran X-Men colorists, pull color duties on this issue. Of course, Virtual Calligraphy's Kate and Cowles comes in for lettering, and Tom Muller does the design. Tragically and sadly, even though Lionel Francis Yu is no longer on the title, he did contribute this gorgeous cover, which is spectacular in so many ways. There are a number of variants, including the X-Men design variant by Lucas Warneck. Russell Dowderman has two. He has the Marvel Girl design variant, and along with colorist Matthew Wilson, he did the connected covers. So this issue has quite a, a cast list of artists, and so it doesn't surprise me that you're saying, man, that art was so good. The interiors were so good. It could have been a cover. Yeah, especially from Russell Botterman. He's probably one of my favorite uh, artists right now. Yeah, and I mean, his Thor work was just life-changing for me. So it's like, mm-hmm. keep him on here forever. Never let him leave. Yes, agreed. Evelyn, how did the team reveal play out for you? And, you know, I actually, I do super legitimately want to know your opinion, especially because this is one of the first major teams called X-Men. And I'm not knocking the teams that were the all-female X-Forces, but there's only been one or two iterations of the X-Men that were all-female. And while this is not quite all-female, it is a very heavy female quantity in a way that kind of, like I said, they were really underserved by this, for me, uh, debut. So what did you think so i was really interested in how or not interested is i was really intrigued by kind of the way they did it i thought it was a little weird that they would decide to do the vote at the gala itself i feel like doing it like prior would have been interesting though at the same time the fact that um they made it where it's just like anyone who could read minds was like allowed to like listen in if they wanted to so I guess having like some air of transparency was kind of nice. um so it's like the actual election itself I thought was just in- just a little strange the way they timed it but I really did enjoy like how they revealed it how just the cute moment with like Gambit and Jubilee uh celebrating with Rogue I thought I was gonna cry I was laughing so hard at Wolverine just eating the shrimp like what <laughs> And then just like the pure happiness of Polaris, like I stand Polaris. So it's like seeing the smile on her face was so cute and I loved it. Have you never cosplayed Lorna? I have not yet. It's it's it, it, it's on my shortlist like, of ones coming shocking. up. That's like legit shocking. 
<laughs> okay. Yeah, it's on my short that list to bad. cosplay her. I did enjoy like just there like everyone like being really happy for them was really cute. No one really seemed at least at the moment to be like oh humbug. It was interesting. I, again, it was it was a little odd, but I thought like the the payoff worked a little bit where they introduced the new X-Men like to the world. Um it really felt like they were trying to like again like this is like a power move this is like a big show it's like we're mutants we're here go fuck yourselves kind of thing um (laughs) (laughs) no i was just done I have to agree with you, Evelyn. I think the way they went about the voting and how the members were chosen was a bit weird and it felt a bit rushed. It was, an, I don't want to say an awkward moment. It was just, I don't know if it was the best approach to how to do this big reveal, but everything else about it was really amazing. Uh, I know I am personally really excited to see Wolverine and Sunfire because I think those are two characters who really deserve a shot in the spotlight. And I think either newer fans or older fans deserve to have not only that form of representation, but just like their characters who I really think deserve to be in the forefront and deserve that characterization, that visibility and everything about them. So I'm really excited to see how this new team is going to interact with one another with the problems that they're going to be facing and what exactly are these new X-Men going to be doing? I don't think that's ever been talked about yet as to, okay, we formed this new... (laughs) Yes. Um, Oh, where's... The new X team is going to do my taxes. Oh, if only. Where's the mutant whose power is that he just does... (laughs) uh, He can just calculate someone's taxes by looking at them. That will be an interesting mutant. His uh, codename is definitely the Auditor. And, um, yeah, he's amazing. (laughs) Uh He's amazing, but he himself is bad with money. That's the whole point. Oh, because we love irony. During all of this, it's also to note, uh, Jean is literally connecting the minds of every single mutant on the planet without Cerebro. So like this is like we're getting a show of her Omega level uh, powers here. That is true. I mean, I have to assume that there is an amount of working together to to greater project like I, I have to assume not in like a shit on emma way i would think i would think gene needs it and i would think xavier needs it and i think the way that they're making it all so flawless and also seamless and everybody just using their brains all together i just think there's something so almost romantic about the synergy it's all so beautiful and emma leading this brigade like the the shining blue diamond we didn't know we needed I am a major Emma stan. Like, legit, I I love me some Emma Frost more than I love me some most characters. But here is definitely a place where I am, like, probably third place on the Emma scale. Like, maybe fourth. I don't know. But, you know, I think this was maybe Emma Frost's best showing ever. In 2020, Emma Frost overtook Jean Grey for more appearances. Legit. Emma Frost now has more appearances than Jean Grey. That's crazy. And I think when you contextualize it with Emma Frost didn't debut until 1979, while Jean Grey first appeared in 1963, there is a good period of 15 years where Jean Grey is the girl. And by that, I mean, she's the only female fucking mutant. So, you know, she's the girl. And I guess, you know, the Scarlet Witch, but she was off being evil for a while. And then Jean's dead for a while, sure. But Emma Frost is also in a bunch of comas. So, like, it really balances out. You know, Emma Frost didn't just overtake Jean in number of appearances, but I believe that Emma Frost has come into her own as a culturally recognizable character. 
Not everybody knows who she is, right? She's not Logan, who is thankfully pretty absent from this crossover in a lot of ways. He just doesn't need the overexposure at the moments. But this was Emma Frost's time to shine. Shine on, you brilliant diamond. How does everybody feel about Emma Frost once and for all cementing her place as one of the X-Men's great leaders in this incredible issue? I mean, like, this really is a point of no return. There is no Emma Frost can ever even be kind of evil again. There is no going back from this. She is Emma Frost now. And you got to accept that. How do you guys feel about this major shift in her character from from two years ago? Let's not forget at the end of Rosencanny, she wasn't even a fucking X-Man anymore. Um, to be honest, I like it a lot. Um, and her, her kind of trajectory of a character, to me, Emma Frost, she's never, like, in the Claremont run, she, she's kind of as, like, this almost, like, villain-y um, in the New Mutants run. But I wouldn't even really say that. She's actually just a principal doing her job of a school. Um, but you're since you're looking at it through the lens of the kids, she kind of comes across as being, like, you know, kind of like, ugh, like, you know, she's, a, she's an authority leader. So obviously you're not going to like her. Um, and then... And when it goes to the Morrison run, that's when she like truly shines in her like glamour and, um, you know, kind of her her personality. She has more personality through um, and that kind of continues out through her through her run on the X-Men, you know, um, because she pretty much uh, is in the X-Men throughout the entire 2000s, 2010s. Uh, and yeah, honestly, uh, a funny quote also that I've heard is um, a lot of people, if you're a comics fan, you know who Emma Frost is. <laughs> but if you're if you're not like if you know of x-men through the movies and stuff you don't know who she is which is kind of a you know like a it's so weird because she is such an important character in the x-men yeah i definitely get that it's like the understanding of who superboy is some people recognize superboy to just be a young superman but then there's people who know that connor is too hot so you know i kind of think it's that same sort of line there and speaking of dc heroes I think, Evelyn, you might be one of the most DC-versed people on our entire show, so that's the connection I'm making there. But how do you feel about Emma Frost changing from a character who could possibly be made, quote-unquote, evil again, like they did in 2018, to this now, where there's no going back? Honestly, again, her character development, like, I've been a fan of her from day one. Like, I loved her as a villain. I loved her, like, starting to become a hero. And I love her now being, like, going from being the White Queen to the White Queen of Krakoa. And it's just, it's been a wild ride seeing her do this. And where she's at now, I think that it would take a really messed up writer to try to backtrack any of the character development she's doing now. Yeah, if you wanted to, like, have her do some, like, some shady shit in the future that's not quite like kosher that would work but trying to make her like purely evil would take a lot of undoing of stuff not to say that there's some shit writers out there that um would potentially do that i as again a dc fan i am very well versed with character development getting just booted to saturn but (laughs) um just seeing her here like from where she was and what she's doing now like this is where she's meant to be like she's literally been for like for high class society she's been through so much she knows exactly how to deal with these types of people to get what she wants and right now what she wants is for the greater good of mutant kind her intentions are good whether or not she goes about them the right way we'll see but at this point her intentions are are 
pure, I think. Yeah, I really agree. And, you know, Jonah, you've only really known Emma Frost as a good guy. You've really never, you've read a couple of issues of her as a bad guy. I mean, there's really only like seven issues of her as a bad guy anyway. But, you know, how do you feel about Emma Frost stepping up in her stagery? You know what I mean? Like coming due to what you've always seen as her potential. Um, lest we forget, uh, Nico, you're going to kill me for saying this. She burned Firestar's, <laughs> Firestar's horse. <laughs> she kills one fucking thing. horse. She kills one horse <laughs> one time. Listen, you can build a bunch of bridges. You can build a bunch of houses. You can build all these beautiful things. But you fuck a goat one time. And that's just what you're and known you're for. Known for, yeah, yeah. Um, not yeah. that. Not to say that Emma Frost killing Firestar's horse is probably the best well-known, best thing she's known for. But I digress. Jokes aside, I think about Emma's journey, and yeah, I've never really known Emma as a villain. But can we ever really call Emma a villain in the first place? Sure, she might have captured the X Men, stripped them down, and put them in cages. But like, who has it at this point in X history? She never really did anything so uh, unredeemable in my eyes in the sense of she was only ever really doing what she needed to do to survive in a world, especially in the 70s and the 80s when the form of anti-mutant hatred was like at a very strong peak in terms of Marvel 616 history. So she really had did what she needed to do to live and survive and... I think once she got her Hellions and she got these kids that she was trying to teach the ways of survival as a mutant in a human world, I think she realized that her purpose and her goals shouldn't be about power for herself. It's about power for the future generation so that they don't have to go through what she went through, whether it was from her abusive upbringing to having to do morally questionable things to even get her place as the white queen within the hellfire club she's a character that time and time again i talk about saying that emma frost's redemption is one of the most beautiful things in comic history where for a while she was just a very over sexualized character and that's kind of all she was until she became so much more and that she was given a purpose and she was given that potential to be this character that's complex and layered and is one of the most stunning creatures to ever step from comic history in my eyes and I'm so proud of her and I'm so proud of the writing team for giving her this moment and saying it's almost like a love song and a love letter and saying thank you Emma for what you've done for comics this is how we're paying you back with this amazing spectacular party that you get to throw and that you get to run I really love that we're all just kind of like, and then Emma Frost, and then Emma Frost, and then Emma Frost, and then Emma Frost. Like, I love how excited we are. This may be an Emma Frost podcast at this point. Yeah, we're all just sort of accepting. It's I was really just great. about to say, to Dazzler, me, Emma too. Frost and Dazzler are like the same. Like, are you really an X? Yeah, if you if you're if are you an X Men fan? If you do not like Emma Frost and Dazzler, no, I don't think and you are. <laughs> I feel I feel like you can put um, Laura Wolverine on that list too. Like Lamos might be like, ew, Laura Wolverine, she's gross. But like X fans, know she's pretty fucking cool. Oh yeah, obviously they didn't read the Children of the the Vault uh, issues because she's pretty badass in those ones. Right, you mean and when I she can't... carried the entire team. <laughs> <laughs> Look, how often does a Wolverine have to carry the entire book's sales? So I think this one time a Wolverine just gets to carry the team. 
the one have time I... in X-Men history when Wolverine carried the book's sales. Yep. Mm-hmm. Never have we seen it before. Never ever. Did we want to talk about the Sinister Secrets? 51 says, This quiet council member isn't actually fooling anyone. They're fooling everyone. Wear a mask long enough and eventually it starts wearing you. Such a shame not being able to let things go. I can't help but think that's mystique. Mm-hmm, same. Right? Mask. Um, see, I thought destiny. She has that, like, mask in her um, in her place, you know, the fire mask that's always shown, like, at the end. Yeah. Issues, you know. So, um, Jonah, what were you about to say? No, uh, now it makes much more sense. Yes, I think Mystique is meant to be 51, because I thought Mystique was 52, but 52 should be Emma, because what's in the box? Tell me what's in the box. All I can think of is seven. Yeah, absolutely. Gwyneth Paltrow's head in a box, usually. Gwyneth Paltrow's head in a box, right? It's it's right there. The little seven humor. <laughs> uh, I believe 53 is about Darwin. That makes sense, right? The fittest see, of all I bet you'd like to know how the Yeah, that has to be Darwin. Playing right back into uh, one of Drew's faves, the Children of the Vault issues. I think 54 has got to be Moira. Seducer made an honest man of the island's favorite boy, but what unspoken secrets are coursing through the nervous system of the favorite boy's island friend? Are you listening? I know that you are. And I think it's Moira well, I... has seduced Xavier. This was the was only like one that I thought I knew. Which I was, was going to say, I thought this was Doug. I just don't. I don't reason I don't think it's Doug is because who's how? Number one, Cypher has never been anyone's favorite boy. Number two, if it's the island's favorite boy, who's seduced him? No, no, oh, no, Bay. no, 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 no. Bay, Bay made an honest man out of him because they probably like. You oh know. yeah, I just forgot I know, they were married yeah. because she just doesn't come up much. Neither does Doug. <laughs> Yeah, but my thought to this was going to be like the emergence of like Krakoa and Doug into like how in Hoxpox they were like that one like w- the Krakoa yeah. was like walking and stuff, and it says that they like merged and and yeah, that's my my guess. I like that. Fifty five regarding secrets and secret alliances, the shad and the shadow play that is the great game of nations. Just how many ruling councils are there now circling the sun? I'll never tell, but if you say two, you're definitely too low. So I assume that's referring to there are more than one. If you're saying ruling councils now circling the sun, I got to assume that they're talking about the fact that there are going to be factions within Krakoa. Yeah, I also thought that, or like other, there are other, like in this one, we kind of have the, um, going back to Excalibur, the Coven and Kaba kind of, uh, you know, they are kind of forming their own thing. Um, I thought and- maybe the Illuminati was briefly kind of shown in here let's not forget um, the Atlanteans. and then maybe exactly um and then i'm guessing there has to be some kind of space you know something uh council you know like i'm sure alluding is all over that i mean 56 is just about filling the seats and i'm kind of like that's not about a person that's just filling some chairs how many favors are you gonna have to call yeah, in fill do, these chairs i do think that namor would make a good um replacement for apocalypse um my thought is maybe that if he sees that they're terraforming mars he'll be like fuck Exactly. There's there will be something so big that they have leverage. Like a big old fulcrum. Launch that bitch into space. For number fifty seven, for far too long they shared an existence. Now one has become two. The first is a shattered captain of a demanding queen, and the second a sinister sword under a sinister thumb. How long will they stay there? How long will the second stay there? How many more sinister demands will be too many? No one knows, but I think we're getting close. I struggle to figure who this one could be about. Um, obviously it's you know Betsy and Quanon. I'm sorry, Betsy and Conan. My 
My only thing is sometimes these get kind of ham-handed. Anybody who was a fan of Desperate Housewives understood how to walk that sort of annoying line. There's this scene where Bree demands a divorce from Orson. And he's like, no, I won't stop stealing. And she's like, no, steal whatever you want, but you will not steal from me, my love. Oh, she's not divorcing him yet. She's refusing to give him half of her company. Right. So, like, I like hand-handed soap opera dialogue, but on this page, it feels a little clunky. How far is too far for the second? (laughs) There's a cleaner way to say that. (laughs) (laughs) Like, you know, just get an editor in there. But for number 58, it's still the early days of the Viscoran excavation of Blight Worlds. Ah! X of Swords. But an unknown material of immeasurable worth has begun appearing in the crooked market. So far, the Mad Jim Jasper so far, the Mad Jasper has snatched up every piece as soon as it's available for trade. But don't you worry, our Confederacy of Capes is set on acquiring it by hook or crook. What's really great about that uh, is, you know, the Crooked World is that famous Mad Jim Jasper story. I know the Crooked Market is already a connection to it. But funny enough, Mad Jim Jaspers often does sort of uh, surrealist, uh, like, vaudeville stuff and will pull people off panel with a giant hook. So it's just a really nice play on a visual that's constant to that character as well. Yeah, and like a lot of these, I think, are kind of what is going to happen in the future of the, like, to me, I'm guessing the Excalibur is kind of going to go into um, the Crooked Market and that area of the world. I mean, I'd love to see that. I'd love to see, like, we, that was something we said we wanted after Ten of Swords. We wanted to see Excalibur become a little bit more uh, the travels of Otherworld, uh, more like an Exiles book. So I would love to see that be the case there. Number 59 says promotions are hard to come by, but when everyone is a resurrected immortal, I'm sorry, promotions are hard to come by when everyone is a resurrected immortal, but sometimes a change has to be made when an unexpected variable is added to the equation. Heroes and their do-gooder ways, always an inconvenience for a practical mute. I think the question of morality versus, you know, the question of amoral versus immoral, if you're being, okay, hear me out. Mutants, were they to do something truly horrible right now, would be acting immorally. They are from a world where these are the rules. If things continue to change within mutant culture, where they continue to make these allowances, at some point, the rebirthed mutants will be behaving amorally. They no longer remember what it is to behave properly. They no longer remember a difference between right and wrong. And I sort of think that's what we're starting to see with the Quiet Council. They're making decisions, and members of the Quiet Council are behaving in ways that are not truly tantamount to their end goals. They're paying today a greater sum than they can afford tomorrow for the long game. How do you guys feel about the sort of dissolution of whatever moral code there was behind the Quiet Council in the last few months? Yeah, it's kind of like, that's kind of how I feel the direction is going into it. They start off with, uh, we're doing it for the good of everybody. But now it's sort of become like, that especially with the with the questioning of the kill no man rule um that one's kind of getting like we're talking about just kind of like maybe nixing that or kind of like you know maybe you know kind of not making it a rule maybe figuring out um, a way so to that, have a flexibility yeah, on it yeah like maybe <laughs> kill no human with an asterisk next to it um and that kill no nice humans <laughs> yeah kill no humans that we like <laughs> is more kind of what it seems like great stevie hunter is going to be safe good job she was the new mutants dance teacher in the 1980s, I'm old. What about Trish? T- what about Trish Tilby? Trish Tilby sucks. Okay, Trish yeah, Tilby I know. super I, sucks. I, I, 
I'm reading Inferno and I'm like, I fucking hate Trish Tilliot. She uses the muse only to awful. further her career. And she makes only. it look like she's she's an ally, but she's not. She's She only does it to, to further her career. And I'm like, fuck off. You are not an ally. You know who didn't get enough uh, credit and was spectacular? Opal Tanaka. Opal Tanaka was spectacular. <laughs> Iceman's girlfriend from 1986 to 1992. Opal Tanaka was great. I, you know, turns out that she was not the person Bobby was in love with. But, you know, good for her. She was great. The Hellfire Gala is in full swing. And the children of the Adam Kids are looking to use this event is their excuse to finally step onto Krakoa. I'm Nathan, and in this next segment, Maddie and our special guest Steve and I cover the amazing Children of the Atom 4. We get into some seriously deep conversation here about whether these kids have crossed the line from mutant allyship to mutant appropriation and fetishization. Also, is Benny really one of the good guys anymore? There's some really fun moments. And some really deep moments, and I'm so glad I get to share this segment with y'all. Hey, everyone! <laughs> this episode of Exodus for Podcast, we are covering Children of the Atom Four. I'm Nathan. You can find me online at DesleAOA on Twitter and Instagram. Today we have with us uh, Steven. Steven, where can we find you at? Uh, you can find me sometimes appearing on the X of Words podcast. I'm around on Twitter at HowdyDuda, and really that's about it for now, but more stuff coming on the way. And I'm Maddie, and as always, or as kind of always, you can find me over on Instagram at the Basely Covetous Man and over on Twitter at Basely Covetous. First off, thank you, Steven, for joining us again. Uh, you were with us on that amazing classic x-men story coverage so i appreciate you popping back in with us to help us cover children of the atom this morning so yay welcome back to the show thanks for having me always a pleasure i don't know maddie have i covered children of the atom with you before i was fortunate enough to be on the first issue of coverage of children of the atom if you were a part of that i have a nasty habit of not listening to my own voice in recording so i could not <laughs> I could not conscientiously tell you if we were a part of it together, but uh, if not, I'm glad to be here now. No, I've been on one before. I think it was the second issue where they where they're talking about the Dazzler concert going to, which I was like freaking out about. I don't know if that was the first issue or not. That was, in fact, the second issue, and I had a feeling that's the one you were a part of because Dazzler, 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 Dazzler. That's your girl. <laughs> I mean, I guess it's all it seems like it's all I seem to talk about ever, but <laughs> it's been a while since me and Maddie have covered it. And I know Steve, this will be the first time you've been with us to cover Children of the Atom. So I just wanted to like real quickly see where is everybody at with this series? What is your take on issues one to three going into issue four? You know, I had a lot of expectations for this series, and I will start by saying that it's not that my expectations are not being met. It's just that my expectations have had to change. What with the horrendous rescheduling issues that this book faced, and and poor Vita Ayala, I cannot imagine their their stress and concern over having this title shelved for so many months when, in fact, it is such a great title. But all that time left me room to speculate what would we be getting. And I think most people coming out of House and Powers into the Dawn of X with the announcement of this title, with the mock-ups of the characters, were really expecting a Chimera story. Now, it's not to say that that's not where this is going. It does not look like that's where this is going. But so every issue, I keep waiting for the mystery to be resolved. And like any good piece of media, the mystery isn't meant to be resolved in the first four 
or so issues. I mean, if you're Twin Peaks, you wait until a season and a half in, which is unheard of. Nobody resolves their season one mystery midway into season two. So I have thoughts, I have comments, I have concerns. I'm ready to unpack them all. But if nothing else, I think that this is an exceptional combination of art and writing. I think that the fact that it has been oscillating between character viewpoints, every issue we had a buddy-centric issue, we had a Ben-centric issue, we had a Carmen-centric issue, we had a Gabe-centric issue. I'm excited to see how, once we get through the full roster, because we only have JJ's perspective left, and this issue certainly left it open for next issue to be JJ's perspective. I'm very excited to see where not only issue five, but issue six will take us, because that's going to be a departure from the pros, from the from the formatting of the narrative, and I'm excited to see how it evolves. When I first started the series, I became a little apprehensive, partially because I wasn't sure exactly where the story was going. I was a little confused as to my expectations as well. You know, you come into this thinking that these kids are all going to be mutants of the new generation, emulating their X-Men forebears. And then very quickly you stop and you realize that that's not what the series is at all, actually. That is something very, very different. So at first I had to readjust, as Matt was saying. That doesn't mean I don't like where it's going. It's very interesting to me. I am wrong-footed at every turn by the narrative, which is... I think frustrating to a lot of people, but for me, makes me more interested in where it's going. Vita is a very talented writer and somebody that I've really enjoyed reading. I know a lot of people had apprehensions about Prisoner X going into it, but I feel like coming out of it was one of my favorite series of Age of X-Men. And this is, if not my favorite series running right now, one of the ones that I'm most interested to see where it wants to go and what its ultimate goal is, because I still don't exactly know yet, but seeing interesting things like the appearances of the Gorilla Man or the U-Men, seeing this, is it mutant appropriation angle or is it is it something more complicated than that, is very intriguing to me and has kept me strung along for the entire ride so far. And I'm also, I don't know if this is staying, but I'm also appreciating the Paco Medina art and David Curiel colors. Marcelo Maiolo's color and shading and facial contouring is sometimes a little uneven for me and sometimes it puts me a little off, although sometimes it really highlights a character in the way that I, I like to see them best. I really like their work with Storm. And I'm kind of basically where you guys are at with the series so far. I really think that the series has really suffered from its delays and having to have been pigeonholed into different events. Because if you look at the original Ten of Swords art, it looks like Children of the Atoms was supposed to be at least tangently part of that event because you've got Cherub on this big poster I'm looking at right here of the Ten of Swords promo art right here. So it got to be really tough for Vita to have written this and that's where i'm wondering i'm wondering how much of this vita had written before and how much of it they're having to change now and how much of it they're still working on now mm -hmm. and I, I i really do i respect the process more than anything our fearless leader nico is one of the most competent and capable writers that i've had the pleasure of meeting and working with intimately and i know firsthand what it is like to well i know secondhand 
what it is like to have your schedule moved around and to have things sort of turned on their head. As a visual artist myself, I have experienced this and I'm sure the entire team that was working on this has had to go back and make revisions and make edits. And you have to be confident that no matter what version of your intended script or your intended storyboard you put forward, that it is the story you are confident in telling. And I think if nothing else, there is nothing about this book that doesn't read confidently. I have faith in Vita as a writer to be able to do that and make the changes and make the adjustments. Steve, like you were saying, The Prisoner X was amazing. Their run on The New Mutant so far has been probably my favorite New Mutant run since maybe back into the original days. Yeah. So, uh, they are a really amazing writer. So let's get into the credits for Children of the Adam 4. So obviously we have Vida Ayala as the writer. We have Paco Medina as the artist for this one. David Curiel as the color artist. We have VCs Travis Lanham as the letterer. And Tom Muller is overall design for the X right now. That overall design piece is actually really important. So if you're noticing all the credits of any of the X books right now, Tom Muller is on the design. But that helps with things overall from just Cohen to the overall look of the data pages to a lot of the formatting things so having somebody on like an overall design for that has really brought together the x books in this age of koa in a way that we really haven't seen everybody aligned to in the past um where's my notes right here this issue is seemingly to me has been sort of pigeonholed into the Hellfire Gala event. It's tangentially important to the book itself and to the plot. Do you feel that this book being brought into the Hellfire Gala in this way makes sense? Do you think that it helped the book or do you think that they should have just kept the Children of the Atom completely outside of the Hellfire Gala? I personally love it and the first thing that I thought when reading this issue was, of course, because of all of the delays, this issue probably of the four that we've read so far suffered the most in terms of rewrites and revisions, but it did not suffer in terms of execution. I think that if nothing else, Vita had such a deft hand in realizing the Hellfire Gala, the idea of humans being open to Krakoa, ties directly into the team's gateway issues. And I think that it was a very natural, logical progression in such a way that I think that people who were not so aware of the scheduling and timing issues of this book release might not have picked up on. It certainly is not. To compare it to something that we covered recently, I think that the union suffered terribly just by virtue of being. But I think that it suffered the most from having been moved from an Empire crossover to a King and Black crossover. And I feel like the entire five issues never bounced back from its editing and revisions. I think Children of the Atom has room to grow and if nothing else waited for the appropriate moment. Because I admittedly without the Hellfire Gala, I can certainly see the inclusion of the X-Men that we get later. That is not directly tied to the Hellfire Gala. The, the floor was set for that with the Jerusalem habitat from an issue ago. The introduction of Captain America, Captain Marvel, and Iron Man confronting the Krakoan, you know, stand-ins about the quote-unquote young mutes, you know. They were already in the wings 
it's from issue two or issue three, I'm forgetting at the moment. But I think that the Hellfire Gala really was such a strong inclusion in a way that homogenizes the earlier inclusion of the X-Men that we are seeing come to fruition in the final page of this issue. I agree in large part with most of what Maddie just said. I think you really hit the nail on the head there. I just reread all four of the Children of the Atom issues right before we started recording today. And I gotta say, like, I completely forgot that the Hellfire Gala was not supposed to happen in conjunction with issue four. Reading it, it felt like that was always what was going to happen. It felt very natural. It felt like the the next step to progress the story forward. So I think you're right. The timing just worked out perfectly and a lot of credit needs to be given to the deafness of uh, Vita's ability to change course. I think that on the exact topic of Vita's deafness, because I cannot credit them enough for their ability, my first introduction to Vita Ayala was in Storm Standalone during Ten of Swords as, as a Marauders issue. The first issue not written by Jerry Dugan. And I typically have such a hard time accepting when a writer is replaced or an artist is replaced for a single issue, a single arc, or indefinitely. And Vita made me fall in love with them pretty immediately. Vita's deafness in writing these four issues, because I also read them this morning again, back to back, before this recording, I would never assume that there was a single scheduling issue to the point that I'm considering picking this up in a trade if the quality and consistency remained the same. I am not the biggest collector, especially of floppies, but trades, I'm very particular. I read digitally, I kill the industry, I'm the reason it's dying. But but I really am considering right now, my thought after issue four was, I'm going to pick this up. This is now in my buy list. And that is a credit to the art. It's a credit to everything, but it's more a credit to Vita than not. Vita has been so deft in what they're doing for this. I can't praise them enough for this. Going back, when you look at some of the issues, issue by issue, been harder to understand. But now that we're on issue four, you can kind of see what they're doing. There is, there's a rhyme and a reason for everything. I think issue three as a standalone issue sort of threw me for a loop with their journey on the sp- on the, the spaceship and you're like how did they get the spaceship what's going on there but you know that we're going to find all that out we know that Vita they're going to tell us what was going on with these kids yeah no, I was just saying that's <laughs> like a skill that was really highly developed among people during the Claremont era in the 90s if only because you constantly had to wait to find out and you often missed issues but I definitely think that it's nice to know that you can trust that these plot threads are going to get picked up again these are not just dropped threads just because an issue or two later they still haven't addressed them i trust them i trust them i know they're gonna get to it we've got the kids now playing with the tech that they discovered on that ship we see some interesting combinations of what their power sets could have been and the kids learn that these toys are kind of dangerous one they you know they almost kill carmen with the zappy laser beam and then two we have marvel guy making carmen kiss her with some pheromones do you think this sort of proves Cradle's point that it's somewhat dangerous for youth to be superheroes. Yeah, yeah, 100%. I could not imagine, and you know, I I recently, to take this on the scenic route, I've recently become involved with a number of friends who I've not known for the last six to ten years of my life. And in that way, you, you have no other option but to look back on a life that you no longer recognize. So I feel like the answer to this is twofold. I do not remember at 30 years old what it was to be 15, 16 years old. I remember it in pieces. I remember it more in the company of people that I shared that time with. And every time I share a time with someone like that, I'm like, oh God, we were out of control. And I was a relatively good kid, but like my decision-making was so poor in, in so many ways that I 
if you add mutant abilities or any metahuman abilities into that mix, I would not be here today, potentially. I definitely would not be in the same position, and I might not be here at all. That said, I think that the way the discussion was handled in issue two between the representatives of the Jerusalem habitat and the representatives of the Avengers was just that in reverse. It's an adult looking back on what it is to be a child without the recollection of what it was to be specifically the child that they were. I think that it comes at a detriment to the capabilities of these five specific individuals with whom they have no prior affiliation or or relation to, to say that they cannot handle it. But it is not out of the realm of possibility, and it is not out of the purview of my mind to say that most kids, most high school age kids, should not be trusted with burgeoning mutant abilities on their own. Supervision is necessary. It's like being a metahuman latchkey kid <laughs> in that way, and I feel like Cradle, while Cradle is going about things the tremendously wrong way, and that's a sentence, but I, they're surely going about it the wrong way, but I feel like even though they themselves are not well-intentioned, the argument itself is well-intentioned. I think a lot of the reason that I don't like events at all, like Outlawed or Civil War, is because we have a real strong case of the mutant metaphor of power standing in as the identity of an oppressed people or a marginalized people, coming into direct conflict with the metaphor of, say, something like gun control or regulation of underage substance use. When they come at each other, they can't both be the same metaphor that they were when they weren't interacting. And I think that that often hampers, hinders, or completely takes the legs out from under an idea like this, like a, a crossover event or something like this in the superhero world. That all being said, yeah, Cradle is a corrupt, bad institution. Mutant registration is something I'm never going to get behind. Um, oh, yeah. We can talk about non-mutant teenage powers because that takes the the marginalized people metaphor out of the question, although it creates other questions. But I think that really the larger question for me is that it, it is who gets to supervise for sure, because the question isn't really whether kids should be trusted with these powers on their own without supervision or whether they shouldn't or whether they should be registered with the government or they shouldn't. It's the question of whether they will be mentored and guided in the exploration of their power, to use the mutant metaphor by a set of experienced elders who know what happened to them when they were young and can help them through this process, or whether they're going to be under the watchful eye and lock and key of a state system, one that is only looking out for its own interests and is frightened of them rather than looking to help them develop themselves in healthy ways. And I think that, that that makes all the difference here in this particular situation. With Kamala's Law, I think anytime you go about registering superheroes or superhumans, especially when you target them like you did the Mutant Registration Act, that is always going to elicit these responses in me that definitely you're, you're attacking a marginalized people, you're limiting a marginalized people. When you look at these particular kids in this particular instance, yeah, it makes sense, but I get what you're saying, uh, Steve, too. It, these were mutant children, and they were just out there fucking around with their powers, and you know, they could be resurrected. Who cares? You know, well, then... <laughs> then you know 
who cares if they're out there playing with each other? Who cares if Pixie gets her head blown off? Because she'll just be resurrected in the morning. It's tough, and you're right, when they do use those heavy-handed metaphors, it does lose a lot of what they're intending to do because there's too many issues that can be brought all into one, and it makes something that they're maybe trying to oversimplify, it makes it a harder problem to oversimplify than they want to. The first time Benny uses his pheromone-seeming or chemical mind-controlling powers, immediately his first reaction is, like the main character in Die, I can't remember their name, does the whole, like, this This one is the most dangerous. I'm, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna have to look out for this because I don't trust my little brother with this, and I don't want to put that burden on somebody else, so we're gonna have to almost never use this one. And that's that's a great sign. That, that makes me feel a lot better about some of these kids. <laughs> you know, if I could jump back to the conversation you, you both were it. having yeah. about the metaphor for marginalized people in the group dynamic here in that they are a youth and that in metahuman people are just a stand-in metaphor for, you know, the marginalized experience in, you know, by and large. I wanted to say that there's been a lot of use of the term heavy-handed, and I want to clarify that I don't think that any of us are saying it's heavy-handed on Vita's part by any oh, no. means. I um, definitely... And that was, if, 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 if nothing else, that was my, the second I hear heavy-handed, I was just like, wait a minute. First argument that came to mind for me, because I'm always ready to go to war, <laughs> it, it, it would seem, is that this metaphor has been pervading this title in an organic way since the second issue, since the Gabe-centric issue, in which he, specifically through his narrative, through the prose on his Part, defies the expectation of a marginalized youth and brings up at one point, you know, everybody has expectations, prejudgments. No one ever bothers to ask what I want. They don't care about who I feel like I am or could be. And I feel like it's blossoming the metaphor of the marginalized individual as not only a person of color, but as a person of mutant ability and also as a youth in this dynamic with the, the oppositions of Cradle, the oppositions of the ideologies of the Avengers and the ideologies of the higher-ups and the adults on Krakoa. I think this is a lotus flower of a metaphor in a lot of ways and I think that it's it's so beautifully handled so far and I just I, I keep looking at my shelf I'm like I have to make room for this trade now god damn it god damn it yeah we keep talking in circles my, my friends and I about the idea of the the mutant appropriation thing that is and I, I think it's interesting to note that like most if not all of these kids are also a different kind of human marginalized person with maybe oh the my god yes buddy is very gender non-conforming coded despite being referred to as she you know just i mean yeah. and benny i have this strange feeling that benny is ace uh but i'm not oh going my god I, I was pretty sure i thought that was pretty well stated in this one so yeah. i thought so too especially i mean for there's just there's confirmation stuff in there but it's never explicit in almost any media yeah i thought i thought that this was a very strong case in this issue one of the questions i was going to ask in one of the important questions of this series. So if, as it looks, they're just human kids playing with tech, tending to be mutants, at what point do they jump from being really strong mutant allies to mutant appropriation and even further things like, you know, pretending to be a minority or not? At what point do they cross the line? Have they crossed the line if they're really human kids? And is it as fine of a line reading these wonderfully nuanced characters and their reasoning behind it and obviously they're not doing it for the wrong reason 
where are you guys at with this Mechie situation? I think Buddy has crossed that line very, very much so uh, It towards a fetishization of mutant culture beyond the, I mean, taking somebody's shirt, attempting to get their DNA and then saying, if this doesn't work, well, we'll just get the DNA somewhere else. It's, it has very much crossed the line into a weird realm. That opened my eyes to her role in it. And it, it a little bit weakens my argument to the opposition. I was going to say that I think they, the the main, you know, theme in this book so far is skirting the line of cultural appropriation and mutant appropriation. I think Buddy even goes as far in the Dazzler issue in issue two when confronted about her appropriation of the Cyclops role is to say that it is a it is a thoughtful and heartfelt homage <laughs> and, <laughs> and tribute. But I think that if nothing else before this title is done, it is going to prove that you don't have it all together when you're young and they think that they're coming from a good place. And I think yeah. that, I think that yeah. the way things are going is we are going to find out that they are not in fact mutants and that they are going to have to accept that in themselves. I think that they're going to have to have some sort of, you know, retroactive and retrospective awareness of the ways in which they have skirted with that line, particularly Cyclops last more than most. Mm -hmm. But I think that this is a group of really well intended, diverse kids. And I think that it would be it would be short sighted for me to say that I think that they are playing with something they don't understand and cannot learn and grow from. It. So do we think that gimmick is attempting to come out as a mutant to Benny, if not the whole group? Yeah. Yeah, but is she a mutant or is she like a fantastic four type gamma radiation type superhuman or something like that? I just, by comparing the juxtaposition of the A plot and the B plot in that issue, I have to say that she's a mutant if for no other reason than she's the one to say or someone is one to say that, you know, mutant ability can manifest in the way of physical illness, et cetera, et cetera. And we yeah. see her go through that entire spiel at the same time as we're learning the fact that Cole did not go through that experience, but rather had himself supplemented with mutant DNA. And we kind of gauge everybody's varied response to that in real time. I think if nothing else, my smart money is on Carmen is the only mutant in the group now. And there's going to be a very cavalcade of response to that a very varied response from every member of the group because we are talking about a group that in their youth are flirting with varying degrees of mutant fetishization and mutant appropriation and i think that i do think she's a mutant admittedly but i think that she is the only mutant and i think that that's going to be something that we have to tackle by the end of this arc yeah I think you're completely right, Matt. And I think that um, if there's one thing that Vita has demonstrated again and again that they are a master at, it is showing, like you said, a cavalcade of varied reactions emotionally and narratively to a shocking development. And I think that's what we're going to see from each of the characters. That's one of the main things I was wondering is what those kids' reactions to Harmon being a mutant, if she actually does turn out to be a mutant, or even if she's not a mutant, just having actual superpowers on her own is going to be their kids, right? And you'd see this in adults too, but they know how to hide it a little bit more. But you can see that, you can tell that there's going to be a lot of jealousy. There's, there's going to be resentment. There's going to be celebration there is probably going to be like you said some uh fetishism and people 
wanting to be with her when they wouldn't have before. And maybe her crush, Cyclops last, would want to be with her. And, you know, that would cause some issues. I mean, I can just see a whole world of things go on. If Carmen does turn out to be a mutant, her whole life would change because she would be accepted into the Krakoan society at this point, whereas the others would have to stay behind and wouldn't be openly and readily accepted. Also, there's the issue of they've presented themselves to the X-Men as mutants themselves. So if it turns out the other kids aren't mutants, they would super not be welcome on Krakoa for the appropriation aspect of it. And, you know, just for the trouble that they're causing in the name of mutants as Teen Mutant Superheroes, which Teen Mutant Superheroes <laughs> are going to get in trouble? They're going to get in trouble. That's the way they are. God, you know, your your mention of them presenting themselves to the mutants of Krakoa as mutants made me revisit that scene. And now I have a really insidious and kind of ugly prediction. And we're certainly not a predictions show, but if I could just toss one out into the ether. I, in reading this book, I keep asking myself, what does this remind me of? What does this remind me of from the ground up? And the answer is Runaways. Oh, it really, it really strongly reminds me beyond the parable of youth discovering ability in the face of oppression. It it really reminds me just of the early foundational elements of Runaways, and I think that we are going to see because this title is not derivative by any means. But if the dynamic of the group is what is leading me to make the Runaways parallel, then I am going to make an early prediction that Buddy turns out to be not so good and. I have not a lot of theories behind why, but I have a lot of predictions as to one early instance is that exact scene where they're talking when they are approached by Storm as, you know, they should be joining Krakoa if they are mutants and everybody kind of has the reaction, um, well, you see, and it feels like on everybody's lips is the fact that we tried the gates, it didn't work, we simply don't know. Buddy, as the de facto leader, is the one to say, we're simply fine here, thanks. Like, we will let you know. She's the one being dishonest by way of lies by omission. And yes. I feel like that's an early sign that her morality may not be where it needs to be. Just because she's a good friend and a good leader does not mean that she's good at heart. And this is where it becomes ugly and insidious. I feel like not identifying Buddy, who is so clearly non-gender conforming, not identifying her as non-binary is a way to try and not make the non-binary character the evil character. Oh, especially from a non-binary writer i feel like it is a very strong it is an effort to include gender non-conformity without out and out making a gender non-binary individual the villain i do feel this strange sensation that buddy is turning out to be like i, I don't want to say a villain origin but there's there's uncomfortable aspects specifically centered on Buddy. Her interactions with Carmen are extremely off-putting, given her seeming lack of interest in Carmen in the way that Carmen would like. The mutant fetishization is strongest with Buddy, and going back and having reread issue one, like on in Buddy's first line of exegetic dialogue in that issue is to scream at some depowered mutants, the, the most marginalized of mutants, essentially, to scream at them that they are giving mutant kind, which she's not a part of explicitly a bad name Ooh. and to me that it, it is so dirty to read that now knowing what we know later in the series to go back and reread that line and see the way that she's dressing up in as a mutant in mutant powers to to harm po 
depowered mutants while telling them that they're by shouting respectability politics of a culture that she's not a part of at them and it just it's infuriating honestly in retrospect and it should have been infuriating when i first read it especially but i'm infuriated at buddy not at vita or any of the artists um yeah just just reading that over again and thinking about how it's interesting that they formed this group that is similar to the o5 of the original x-men and They've dressed up in the clothes of some of the O5 and some of the earlier X-Men. And they're doing what the X-Men used to do pre-Krakoa, which is this whole respectability politics front where the X-Men's whole mission was to be the good, respectful mutants who took down the bad mutants that made mutants look bad to humans for the mutant for the humans, you know? And it's I think it's telling that Buddy has recreated that in the face of Krakoa. Krakoa happened, these marginalized people took their ball and went somewhere else and are able to live free and happy lives without human interference now. And Buddy's reaction to Krakoa is to recreate mutant respectability politics in the human world again, to bring back that outdated and outmoded form of the X-Men in the way that some fans who do not like the Krakoan era have been advocating for. And I think that itself is a really interesting parallel that I am starting to read into the character and something that convinces me that this is not a character that I am going to like very much as we get further and further into the story. But it's it's a wild characterization. It's very interesting to read. Ooh, along that line too, just like the whole relationship Buddy has with Carmen. Like it's it's gotta be obvious to anyone that like Carmen is madly in love with Buddy. Yeah. But like for Buddy to, oh wow. So like that adds a sinister element to that as well. Whereas Buddy is just using Carmen because Carmen's the one who creates all the costumes. Carmen's the one who does all the outfitting. So, oh my oh God. God. Wow. Oh God. And and then the, the, the parallel runs further because not only is she exploiting... she's she's exploiting a culture of marginalized people but she's exploiting a marginalized person emotionally by not sharing and reciprocating feelings she's exploiting the work of a marginalized person of color so this is and i really i really genuinely hope that this doesn't you know in some ways because you can't be confronted with something ugly like this and say well i really hope this is how it turns out you know i there's a part (laughs) there's a part of me that really wants to be wrong but now there's a part of me that really needs the three of us to be right because i can't read the character the same way wow hold on. this is eye-opening this is really eye-opening i'm like the way you guys put all these pieces together i am wow these are not these are not opinions i have formed entirely on my own i do a lot of discussion with the other people in the x of words chat and honestly this is just stuff we've been turning over in our heads since day one Ah, uh, see, I envy you because these are things I just like think out in my own head like an asshole with no one else to talk to about it until, <laughs> until, until, until Sundays when we record. So like mine are half formed by way of like not having that outlet. So I'm just like, oh my God, yay, Nathan and Steven. Um, <laughs> well, we're here to share more information with you and other uh, information. I just don't want anybody to think that this is necessarily original work on my part. Although, <laughs> you know, absolutely, I agree with a lot of it. Major, major respect. Major respect. That, that makes these other questions seem inconsequential, but I'm going to ask them anyway. <laughs> um, the I do like how Vita, they're playing with teenage sexuality in this book. We've obviously got Carmen, who is a lesbian. We've got... Uh, well, now I don't want to say Buddy, who may be non-binary, but, you know, maybe she's a villain, too. So 
maybe we just want her to stay as a villain. <laughs> and then we've got uh, Benny, who appears to be Ace. I find it actually refreshing and seeing those conversations, especially when Benny thought that Carmen was trying to say that she loved him. I thought that was hilarious and kind of reminded me of some of my own teenage conversations with people. What do you guys think about the exploration of sexuality that this title is actually giving us? It's refreshing to see a variety of different sexualities, some that I still am not 100% on, of course. Definitely a little confused having gone back and read Buddy's thoughts about Gabe and Gabe belonging to somebody else, but I'm unsure of who that is supposed to be. Does Buddy not know that Carmen is a lesbian? Is that possible? Is is Buddy that oblivious? A little, yeah. I really think so. I think that I was confused as to the fact that Carmen may be biromantic until this issue because of that Buddy-centric issue. And now, even though I've just reread it after this conversation, I hope you both know, I'm going going back and rereading issue one <laughs> because I need to specifically reread Buddy's cadence and, yeah, Buddy, and Buddy's tone. And Stephen, I, I genuinely envy you for having had this elements of this conversation before your reread. I value these conversations so much and I think that's something that we provide for each other and I hope that we provide for our listening audience that yeah. when these conversations hit, man, they hit. I'm blessed to have these kind of conversations on an almost daily basis and if you ever want to have some with me, come on and jump in please anytime <laughs> I'm ready, you let's go. Me up Twitter anything you can just come at me with a thing you'd be like hey, I believe this <laughs> see, love this is, to see it this is how the cult of X starts not the cult of X from cable but like <laughs> our cult of X <laughs> you know X-Men fans have been called a cult on Twitter a few times so <laughs> let's not propagate that but anyway um my last question is so when they're attacked at the gate they they're taken down pretty easily because you know they're kids and they don't have much experience in their not powers but their equipment but nighty night crawler escapes <laughs> and comes back with the x-men this panel here is the only reason that i think this issue was written before and had to be reworked because if this was written now i would have thought that the x-men would have been closer to what the lineup of the x-men that was just announced during the hellfire gala was but nighty nightcrawler escapes do we think did buddy's scheme to get through the cocoan gates did that work did nighty nightcrawler get through or did the x-men just somehow magically know they were in trouble i think he used storm's communicator badge that she gave them <gasps> in the issue previously yeah Yes. Agreed, agreed. I didn't even think that angle through. I was like, oh, he went through Krakoa. He went to the gateways. Oh, my God. I'm just curious to know. Well, no, that's a stupid thing to say. Because uh, I was going to say, I'm curious to know how the teleporter got into Buddy's room to get the communicator. Like, that's silly. So that's my thought. My thought is that he he was just like, blink, 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 until he got it right. <laughs> and it, it wasn't as cute to sing it with Bamf. Like, I know that it's Bamf, but it would have been like, Bamf, 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 Bamf. I think um, it changes the track totally, that. though. That that's a that's a track I want you to drop, Maddie. You need to drop bam, that track. Bam, 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 turn it up, bam. <laughs> we got, so we got. It's my EDM EDM single, like Will Smith uh -huh. and Jazzy Jeff. Speaking of uh, EDM singles and these kids rocking out, how crazy is it that they are in a band? <laughs> Wonderful. Every teenager should be in a band. 
Yeah, a little bit. The team. In favor of being in a band, I was just a part of a bunch of like maybe three to five of us that would get together like when school let out in the lobby and just obnoxiously play like discordant music while people left school. Yes. It was just a lot of figuring out like, what's that? What's that? A C minor? No, no, no. It's a C major. Oh, hold on. Wait a minute. Bam! While like 350 kids like rushed out to their bus. Wait, you played it at the school? Yeah, like, literally. Oh, oh yeah, while well, people while people were leaving, it was just like I was like that schmuck when I was an underclassman that just carried my guitar everywhere and like always played Wonderwall. So please, guys, if you liked me before this episode, please continue to like me. I've grown a lot, <laughs> and that's all. That's all. Every teenager should be in a band, no matter what that band looks like. Yeah, if you're terrible at playing, be in a band. If you're good at playing, be in a band. That is hella awesome, though, Maddie. I, I, that's crazy. I love that for you. That's great. I, uh. What instrument do you think that? everybody plays in the group i'm gonna say benny's on drums obviously yeah because we've seen it i feel like carmen would be very skilled at keys no you know what i feel like gabe would actually be a very skilled pianist okay okay so help me figure out buddy carmen and jj i think carmen's a singer i think carmen's a singer we know that carmen sings the hook and we know that gabe does the verses from that from that little data page oh my god I'm assuming that's. Oh, I, I knew I knew about Carmen, but was that Gabe? Really? Wow. I don't like to assume because the name was Dark Colossus, but very, very fair. He's just the only one we have not seen, other than you know, Archivist X, Faintly Frosted Stitches, and then the what was it, Weapon Extra? Yes, Weapon Extra. Yeah, Weapon Extra was a good name. God, buddy, 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 buddy. I feel like JJ doesn't guitar. do anything. Buddy's guitar. No, ooh, I would say JJ's guitar. Buddy's bass. Oh, ooh, okay. JJ's not in the basement. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just, I just feel like Buddy, Buddy's a little too subversively cool to be a guitarist. I feel like she's just like she grew up and was just like, I want to play bass. Like it said, I can't do anything on my own with it, but like I'm definitely the leader. And you're just like, okay. That's is it fine. weird? That, is it weird that I assumed Buddy just did the mixing? <laughs> oh my god. Well, uh, I feel like she's so Type A that she has to. Hmm. Oh yeah. Oh, totally. or or would she delegate it to Carmen? Thanks for joining us, guys. <laughs> I think she would delegate it to Carmen. Uh, she'd be like, Carmen, come here, babe. Can you do this for me? Oh, yeah. mix, mix oh my god, you're hard. right. Oh, you know what? I don't even think she would come to her helplessly. Like mixing is so hard. I think she would kind of just be like, she would purposefully present like a mediocre mix. And just wait, wait for Carmen's <laughs> own Type A qualities to be like, well, you can fix this, and you can do that, and you can actually lower the treble here. And you know what? I'm just going to take it over. And we, we and we did see Carmen's Type A with the the live streaming. So yeah, maybe maybe Carmen does do the mixing. I hope I, I hope everybody knows that I am I am. Should I ever be active on my Twitter again, it is going to be a Buddy Hate Stan account. Yeah. So please hit me, hit me with your best DMs uh, if you if you also think Cyclops Glass is uh, is kind of a bitch. Hey everybody, Nico here one last time. Now, in this next segment, we get our planet-sized X-Men coverage started. There was so much to talk about that we had to have multiple groups sit down to talk about it. Josh, Arturo, Blake, who at some point sort of stepped through a Krakoan gateway and we kind of lost him, but don't worry, his coverage will show up, along with Drew, sat down to talk about some of the most amazing parts of how Arako is finally playing a part and how space is such a transformative idea for a people who have already moved out to an island. This next segment was one of my favorite to edit 
and we hope you guys enjoy it just as much as we enjoyed making it. Don't forget to give us a subscribe over on YouTube, Twitter, and Patreon if you like what you hear to help us shape the future and maybe even become part of the show. All summer long, we'll be bringing in amazing new contributors, and you could be one of them. So don't forget to reach out and let us know what you think. Until next time, guys, keep those Krakoan gateways open, those mutant lights lit, and we'll see ya. Alright, so now our group is going to talk about planet-sized X-Men, right? So part of our comprehensive coverage here, right? With me, I have Drew, Blake, and Arturo. And we're going to talk about planet-sized X-Men by Jerry Duggan, Pepe Larraz, and Marte Gracia. And with a big focus on the Iraqis. So first, let's start off. We can go around, right? What were your thoughts on this planet-sized issue? All the thoughts, my thoughts are in pieces. My mind was blown to smithereens. This comic, it's been nearly a week since since I read it, and I can't stop thinking about it. It crawled into my mind, and it lives there now. This was like the best thing I've read in a long time. Yeah. Pepe Larraz and Marte Gracia are literal gods. Yeah. They are the new gods now. Geniuses, bro. They're on another level. No one like, there, there isn't, I don't think, a, a competition for you know who's the best in the game right now it's you know who's second or third yeah um, yeah there are no better colorists like i, I think oh um, no okay. I, I love i love pepe's art you know but i mean it's it's very when you start talking about who the best artist is it gets very subjective but like i really i will stand and die on a hill where i will say that there's no better color in, in comics right now like and and he's on the x-men and that's amazing i couldn't agree more yeah Mate, I mean, it's, amazing. it's everything that pepe does it's his paneling it's his use of size and scale for scope you know there's a full page splash early on in the issue of magneto um you know kind of shrunk down he's like the smallest thing on the page compared to the size of the asteroids and the the iron core that he's bringing in from the kuiper belt um it's you know we were talking earlier about the the uh impregnation of um <laughs> of one james braddock um with you know the the sperm impregnating the mind womb and then like i just want to see the script i want to see where like jerry's just like where jerry says okay so uh here are the characters dot 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 and then they teleport all of Rocco to mars and Pip is like, okay, how do I draw that? And this is what he comes up with. It's absolutely just mind-bending the way this guy this guy draws. His, his art is just, this is the most beautiful comic. I just love how, how Hope and Quentin are just sitting on the beach waiting for that to happen. <laughs> and like that it. whole mm-hmm. scene of it just like, yeah, the transition of the landmass to yeah. the new planet. I mean, God, this is, I, I have crazy comics, guys. Like comics. I like- have the issue in front of me and the only, like the only downside the only negative in this entire issue like having the paper-based issue the 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 actual comic in front of me as i'm flipping back and forth like the only disappointing thing in this whole issue is having to flip past the the double page fold out ad for sinister war like everything (laughs) else is just absolute fucking gold in here See, I read this digitally, and I just want to say, like, now for the pod, like, I'm now flipping through it and looking at them as complete pages. But, like, panel to panel, it's worth experiencing that because the reveals are even bigger. Like, when you don't see the splash page happen and you're just Mm -hmm. flipping through the story and then your whole screen happens like that, like, it's just, yeah. That's another thing about his, uh, about their artwork that is so incredible is the way it works digitally is, is just beautiful. 
right, so uh, Pepe and Marte killed it. Let's talk about Jerry. Jerry did something here that is really impressive, and it just kind of adds to, you know, his spectacular resume in this era. Jerry started out as the funny guy, right? Mm-hmm. Jerry's first big Marvel book was writing with Brian Posehn, Deadpool. Um, and the first real comics or other things they were trusting him with after, kind of similar to Chip Starsky. Like, you know, Chip Starsky, they only really trusted him with, like, silly Spider-Man stuff and Howard the Duck at first. And now he's killing it on Daredevil. Yeah. Um, you know, wow. with Jerry, you know, they moved him to Guardians or, you know, the avengers uncanny avengers volume 2 built around deadpool like you know they didn't really trust him with serious stuff at first and now we're seeing him as this guy who's writing a marauders book that's filled with unique female voices and queer voices and people of color voices you know we've got him um writing a cable book you know with a uh an adolescent protagonist that is uh, the exact type of dumbass that like teen boys are and feels like an honest teen boy depiction and here in planet size we're getting a book that feels like hickman like we're getting like a major hoxpox era just huge event touchstone issue that feels like hickman but wasn't written by hickman it really felt Um, like hickman i couldn't agree more it feels like like this huge paradigm shift like and i gotta just say we all not just on this part like i think everybody collectively had a really good sense of what was going to happen right like terraforming mars or terraforming a new planet like everybody had the vibe so the fact that nothing completely shocking happens in this issue what we thought was going to happen kind of happens it happens on another level like that it does absolutely blow your mind like we're on mars now we all kind of saw that coming nobody ever dreamed that it would be like this not at this scope not at this scale we're on Galm. Yeah. Galm. i wanted them i was really waiting for them to rename mars Galm just to like kind of go back and tie into the fuck up uh from you know the hickman acknowledged in house of x1 that you know there was supposed to be a, a door in the background that had the word mars written on it a and gate that had the word mars coded on it and they screwed up the letters because they were just getting started with the Krakoan an alphabet and they accidentally wrote Galm. <laughs> I would have loved them to rename Mars Galm just to kind of tie into that. Uh, but like, can you, I, I know everybody's been nervous kind of about, or not everybody, but there's a big shift in the creative teams coming, you know, like Hickman's going to do something else and, and Jerry's taking over X-Men and, and leaving Marauders is I think what is the, the nervous part is like, you know, where's Marauders going to go? How's it going to fit in? Who's And how's it going to continue? Uh, but how nice is it to get technically like an in-between issue? If we, if this happened like every single time, like a creative team changes and you could just drop this issue to just let you know like hey this book is in a really safe and good place like this book is in good hands like as soon as you read this you're like yes jerry's writing x-men like there's he has to write it he has like this makes total sense and it's just like you don't get that in in comics a lot it's just like this like if you get really attached to a run it'll end and then you kind of like wait for an announcement and then you get an announcement and then you don't really know and then and sometimes even when great writers take over a run it can take a few issues to get rolling and but this that's not what happens now like we get planet size x-men and you and you just know it's in your heart it's in your it's in your blood it's going through your veins you're just like yep x-men's in the right place 
I haven't felt that in a while in the whole dawn of dawn and rain deal. Like I haven't felt right. that security. This I, is this is a book that has focused on a lot of characters here. It utilizes you know nearly all the omegas. You know, with a special call out to the fact that um, Franklin Richards was supposed to be here, but now he's a pretender. I like that um, they fit that in. Yeah, I, I also like. I'm just so because they have to, but it just it's also just a reminder of the disappointment of what happened to Franklin. Yeah. Like if you're not happy with uh-huh. how that went down, but man, just so much like and getting them all on the same page you know getting jamie and exodus and storm and Iceman and quentin and you know god magneto and just everyone who was a part of this it was you know seeing them use their powers like that um and then obviously the big bringing in the iraqis right so yeah. that we get four specific Arakan characters right we see that iska the unbeaten my queen is Rip. the new queen Rip. Remains unbeaten. Yep. And is the uh is playing the Xavier role in their loud council or I don't remember what it's called. The Great Ring. Their loud council. <laughs> the loud council. And we get three new mutants. Three new Lactuka, obsessions. The Knower, Sabunar of the Depths, and Xylo, first defender of this broken land. Some Arakan Omegas that just blow our minds. Sabunar, a Sabunar of the Depths. You guys, Sabunar is my favorite Bebe Laraz creation ever. Like, what I loved about Pog Your Pog has been refined <laughs> and beautified into Sabunar of the Depth. I am obsessed. And the fact and that, what, that he's such a badass that he's like, he calls everyone cowards at one point. Like, he's just, he's feisty. I love him. And and how beautiful, like, what we get in the use of their powers. Like, I couldn't that imagine anyone other than Pepe and Marte to have done this. You, you couldn't. There's uh, so many great artist you know i talk all the time about how how much i love every time we get a kasara issue i'm not even sure i'd want kasara on this like this no. has to be pepe and Marte. um <laughs> i'm sorry i'm looking at sabino again dive in and prove your worth unless you are soft cowards and for the record mutant power has a body that contains an entire oceanic ecosystem then Lactuka the knower whose gift is to know where everything is which had a, a just a fantastic moment of gene getting blown away by you know how much knowledge was in Lactuka's mind and then Xylo, first defender of this broken land, who consumes and passes the very soil for Iraqi, which which was was really cool. Super but I gotta cool. be honest, I don't fucking understand it at all, at all, at all. Like I, this is where I was saying, like this is just sci-fi cranked to a thousand, right? Like they give you, you know, enough to go with it, and just like you see him going into the soil, and then you see, you know, life sprouting, like, and you see the you know the helpful little scientific uh diagrams or whatever and yeah somehow he's creating life and bacteria and plants and insects and like and it was good they did xylo last because they had earned enough trust along the way in this amazing issue yeah that by that point we're just like yeah i'll go i'll go with anything i'll I'll buy whatever you're selling i'll buy it i don't yeah no complaints you can yeah you can just wing it on one of them that's cool yeah that was super cool and just like again pepe's mind like you've got this huge like grub worm looking character and then all of a sudden he just like turns into these you know millions of little like 
filaments and threads. Like that's not an obvious thing, you know, like that, that's not like, how do you get there mentally? It's just, it's so cool. There's going to be a red lagoon. There's going to be a red lagoon. Yes. Who do you think is, here's a question. Uh, who do you guys think is going to be the regent of soul? It has to be storm. It's storm, isn't it? I, I hope it is. I think it is. I think I thought it was storm. It's, it's kind of like the, all these things have been like alluded to in like all past books all the way from like we've seen like they've terraformed mars before and like that's happened with like the sinister um in hawkspox there was like the sinister the cloning forms of mars yep. you know and it's it's like that's been hinted like even like we've heard like rumbling storm is up to something you know so it it's like like you said arturo like we don't know what's happening but we know what's happening i love like i love can we talk about the the map at the end because we've done we did see some of these you know some of these areas in the book right like we've seen the valley of the fallen uh but one that really caught my eye is hellfire farms yeah which that came up earlier in the issue that they needed they they they're savage able to grow more medicine right and tying into facility in xcore tying into xcore yeah exactly exactly Mm -hmm. so that's that's going to be interesting but Oh, you know, my mind definitely went to Sinister and the Chimera and, you know, a whole other kind of farm on, on Mars. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then also this, this there was the Autumn Palace. I, I was like, what, like, does that have to do? Who's on the Autumn? Who, yeah, team? that's a good question. Well, or the Autumn team, the uh, like on the council yeah. is, oh, that would make sense. That's Sinister. Autumn is Sinister Mystique and Exodus. Exodus. Ooh. So yeah, that's a, that's a good contender. I just, I think. Yeah. I'm just kind of like, curious yeah. what happened in there i got caught i want to know about um, the house of prominence which sounds like a finalist mm-hmm. on legendary uh the tharsis montes which i'm not sure if that's a real spot on mars like some of these other ones are um but whether it's a real place on mars or a made-up one for Araco mars i do know that it's based on the john carter of mars books with tharsis being like the the major kingdom that um deja thoris is from and so yeah, interesting is, for the Thars- Tharsis are the green ones. But Tharsis is Tharsis is one of the the kingdoms and races or places on Mars in there. And so whether it's been named in real life as a spot after Edgar Rice Burroughs, John Carter of Mars books, or it's being named from it here, um, that you know, recognizing that as where it comes from, I thought was cool. Yeah, this is just great. I mean, this does this does such a good job of teeing up all of these new areas and new places and new stories to be told. And like I could not be more excited for this this new this new book. One thing I want to say that I think was so freaking cool about this issue was how mutant magic and mutant technology and and the, and the circuits were like such a part of it but mm-hmm. it was it was kind of like done effortlessly like we didn't get data pages we didn't get maps we didn't get like you know it, it didn't feel like it, it didn't feel contrived but it really it had been explained enough that we could just kind of like roll with it go with the ride at this right time. and you could see three people working together you could see five people like but i just want to say like jamie really really fucking leveled up in this issue like i've seen you know we've seen him like manipulate reality and it's kind of like a you know it's it's a weird power set um and it it seems a little you know sometimes temporary and whatever but like this guy made a full-blown space station and a spaceport like out of thin air i mean and yeah he had some you know other mutants there helping him out but like goddamn yeah hope was was hope powering him up hope was powering him up he was working with quentin and gene yes 
Like Elixir was allowing his body to heal and and do these things. Hope yeah. was powering him up. Quentin and Jean were uh, inseminating his brain. Literally, like God damn, it was literally so inseminating cool. his brain. So fucking cool. What do we think of a Jean Jamie? A Jean Jamie? <laughs> Because they they like technically had a kid together. <laughs> they did. Oh my god! So Sword Two is Cable's brother. <laughs> that that Cable should run this ship. That, that's... Sword Station Two is Cable's brother. I I want to see a Sword Two book. I want to see or I want to see mm-hmm. the, the I want to see the Sword Two Station play a big role in Sword One. I want uh, I, want I want an Iraqi, entire Iraqi. I want an Iraqi Sword space two, station. But... Yeah. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Totally. Like, uh, just like, so much it cool could be, stuff. It could be a whole new book with, like, literally, like, a whole new team that, like, nobody knows anything about, you know, with all these cool mutant designs and stuff. This is just such a cool solution because, like, we all just kind of rolled with it at the end of Ten of Swords when, okay, Arako <laughs> is now, uh, Arako is now back on Earth and there's, you know, millions of inhabitants, like, we just kind of like, we're like, okay, but you know, there was kind of this question of like, is, that's kind of a big deal that feels like that needs to be handled. And it's now it's been handled in like the coolest, most, you know, world shaping way we could imagine. And I like it, how they yeah, also it, addressed that, like specifically when Cyclops has that meeting with Captain America and he's like, okay, <laughs> like you can't just bring a whole island onto this planet and not say anything. <laughs> now we have the, the Cyclops Captain America meme. It gives them, it gives them like soil in which to grow like they could literally be like their own thing going forward like now you have now you have these like space you know bound mars bound you know mutant cousins oh speaking of mutant cousins shout out to magneto for tugging on my heartstrings several times in this issue when he refers to them as his cousins as the other side of the of the of the family tree like i just this is just this is a big deal because the iraqi being left on earth was a ticking time bomb we saw you know the the potential you know direction that could have gone in uh in that cable issue that just still pisses me off when i think about um when i think about cable and cyclops beating up to a rocky and handing them over to the cops right like that was not a good beat i would i did not like that direction and i love that this is just totally changed now now we've got yes. mutants in space they're going to have a whole fucking planet to deal with they're going to be dealing with other alien races like fuck yeah we've got we've got x-men on mars which is what a lot of people were expecting from Hoxpox. um you know a lot of this coming to fruition this feels like another Hoxpox in a sense of how much fertile ground for future storytelling it opened up the way house of x just revitalized the whole x line for a million of new stories that could be told you know this opens so much for the iraqis for the x-men for moving into the future um you know and what it demonstrated in terms of the powers of omegas in mutant magic mutant technology um this this was a huge mm-hmm. issue and then you know our, our, our boy blake got his fireworks at the end he's been he's been asking for fireworks every week and he got his fireworks on the final the final art page it was worth the wait it was worth the wait it was worth the hype i love that i love that we all were imagining in our heads just the way it's been laid out issue to issue what the fireworks look like we kind of had to fill in 
the blanks with our imagination. And then Pepe outdoes your wildest imagination. And it also, it makes sense that you would save it, one, for the Pepe Marte issue. Yeah. So they could draw it. And two, that you couldn't really give visual glimpses of anything because, like, this was a big reveal. Like, you wouldn't want to have given more away than they had in lead up to this of what planet size that can go be. Yeah. Yeah. This is this is a hell of a crossover. This is or, or, or an event or whatever we're calling mm-hmm. the health, Hellfire story. I, I guess you have to call it a crossover. Um, yeah. Just a really neat trick. I love how they've done this. It's one night, all these different moments of the same night. And then we get finally, we knew this was happening on some level, but then we get this huge reveal of what actually is happening. And just game changer. And they've given us, you know, we've all wanted more of the Iraqis. And now we're, and we got them in a very big way here. Um, You know, kind of at the the turning point of this event. You know, we know that now we're running downhill in this. Like, we're running towards the conclusion of the Hellfire Gala. And, you know, yeah, like, boom. You know, the Jerry and Pepe and Marte really dropped the mic on this one. So, just amazing job. Any last thoughts? Hold fast. I think this is Jerry's best book so so far um in the x-men series like this was my favorite book by him uh including like marauders and cable and, and that uh it was just like yeah the whole issue i thought was really great everything not only his best but a, a trick i haven't seen him do like this is this mm-hmm. is this is a side of him that like i i just wasn't really expecting yeah. i didn't know what I would, to expect i i mean i'm optimistic for the new book for sure but like i didn't know this was going to be this and it, it just blew my fucking mind away more of this in x-men please oh yeah please more more please always 